Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. Millions of Muslims have migrated to Europe and North America in the last 50 years. Their arrival has ignited fierce public debates on both sides of the Atlantic about religious freedom and tolerance, terrorism and security, gender and race, and much more. How can Christians best respond to this situation? My guest, Matthew Kaming, in his most recent book, offers a thought-provoking Christian perspective on the matter. Rejecting both fearful nationalism and romantic multiculturalism, Kaming makes the case for a third way, a Christian pluralism that is committed to both the historic Christian faith and the public rights, dignity, and freedom of Islam. Matthew is Assistant Professor of Christian Ethics and an Associate Dean at Fuller Theological Seminary. I give you Matthew Kamig. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. So you've written a book that, I mean, you know, not very timely, uh, Christian Hospitality and Muslim Immigration in Age of Fear. I mean, did you just want to write something abstract and around? I mean, that's pretty, uh, I mean, it's interesting, right? This is an incredibly timely uh, topic and I mean, why, as a Christian theologian, did you want to work on this? Well, it's actually funny you mentioned the timing of Muslim immigration as a public debate. Uh, I was actually it was 2010. It was the second year of um, Obama's presidency, and um, I was reading this book about these clashes that were happening in Europe over Muslim immigration and these rising uh, right wing nationalists that were coming up. Uh, all over the continent, um, populist politicians who were railing against Muslim immigration as a security risk, as a threat to the culture. And, um, I thought to myself as I was reading, my goodness, I wonder someday in the future if a right-wing nationalist were to rise uh, in the United States railing against Muslim immigration, what, uh, what would a Christian response to that kind of Islamophobia be? And uh, I had no idea that coming down the road, you know, Donald Trump was coming. You were like, what What would it look like? And, and, and then you heard, it would look like me. It would be so fantastic and wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so yeah, it, it's interesting, right? Because I think there would have been some skepticism about that kind of populist nationalist movement cropping up here. And yet it did, like, pretty, like overnight. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It it moved pretty quickly. And um yeah, it's quite alarming. So um I had originally pitched this book to a publisher uh four years ago, and the publisher said, you know, Muslim immigration just is not that big of an issue here in the United States. That's more of a European thing, and, and they, they turned me down. <laughs> and then uh Trump uh, Trump came on the rise and really fed off of this fear of Muslims moving in. And uh, the publisher called me back and said, "Hey, we, we want to talk about this." So, um, yeah, it's 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 a massive issue. And specifically, I write as a Christian ethicist, you know, a Christian theologian. So I'm really battling within the Christian community for helping them to uh, think Christianly about these issues. So. Yeah, because what's interesting, right, is that conservative Protestants, evangelical Protestants, are a big part of this nationalist movement's base. I mean, that's, the, you know, that that has been an incredible part of it. It's interesting because you talk about in the book how evangelical Protestants are 
becoming more of a minority just statistically. And yet what's interesting is they're not any less representative in the Republican base. Like they're still at like 70, 78% of the Republican like base or something. I mean, I, I forget what I was looking at PRI statistics, but it's interesting because even though the, the, the influence of evangelicals might not be as wide in the culture, it's still really wide in the Republican Party. Yeah, it is. It, it, it's very influential. Um, but the interesting thing, however, or the sad thing is that um, evangelicals are not being driven by evangelical theology. They're being driven by nativism and Islamophobia. Um, it's not actually their faith that is pushing them to fear or hate Muslims. It's, it's something else. And so, you know, I teach at Fuller Theological Seminary, which is, um, has long been looked at as a sort of central evangelical institution. And, um, we're really trying to get Christians to think theologically about these kinds of issues in much more thoughtful ways. Um, but the general evangelicals on the ground, uh, are not being, uh, they're not voting with their faith. They're voting with a sort of nativistic, uh, Islamophobia. So. Yeah. Yeah. And this is like the evangelical movement in America. It seems like it's splintering with, you know, you had this meeting recently at Wheaton College. I think your president was there, I think, Mark, uh, uh from Fuller. And then Tim Keller and a bunch of these other evangelicals and, and institutions like Fuller and Wheaton College, there's kind of, you know, educated, sort of sophisticated evangelicals. There's that group. And then there's the rank and file. And it seems like there's not much influence coming. It, it, it seems like the movement is kind of splintering. Yeah, it's, it's a major issue of uh, formation. You know, you have these intellectual evangelical colleges and seminaries um, arguing for civility in politics and generosity. Um, and then you have the people on the ground, the evangelical people on the ground who, uh, want nothing of that. And really it's a question of formation. Um, you have all of these evangelicals listening to talk radio and watching Fox news every single night. And that is having a much more formative effect on their political imaginations than, you know, an hour of church on Sunday. And so it's a huge issue for for all of these evangelical institutions. It's interesting. You talk in the book, you spend a lot of time describing stuff on the ground in the Netherlands, Netherlands, and you talk about the failure of both the left and the right with Muslim immigration. Like the left is sort of open arms. Hey, we if we welcome them, it'll be great. But it's a little naive and optimistic, right? And that, And maybe there's not enough preparation for just how much cultural... Uh, tension and distinction there is as, as Muslims are coming into a place like the Netherlands, which leads to a kind of right-wing populist backlash, right? Like, well, okay, our neighborhoods don't look the same anymore. We're kind of afraid of the other and the difference. And, and you sort of lay out like these sort of two polar opposite things that kind of feed off of each other and have both been failures for the Islamic encounter in Europe. Yeah, you know, I'm really, it's a it's a debate over whether or not the door should be open or closed. And in my book, I'm arguing that that debate is the wrong debate. Uh, if you, if you picture, you know, America as a house, um, the left is arguing we should open the door and the right is arguing we should close the door. But no really, no one really has an ethic of what to do when the people are inside. <laughs> How do we live together with deep, deep difference? Um, the right sort of wants to expel the difference, sees the difference, you know, Muslims as a threat. And the left 
takes more of a, a patronizing posture towards Muslim immigrants of let's care for them, let's empower them, let's um, help them integrate and ultimately become like us. So hopefully they will grow out of this backward conservative religion and become, you know, enlightened left-wing elites like us. So um, really we have this huge problem in Europe and it's happening. It's beginning to happen here in the United States is debates over immigration tend to be over whether or not the door should be open or closed. And there is no real accounting for how we live together once we're inside. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because, you know, if, if some of the problem in Europe, right, is this fear that, okay, you've got immigrants coming from a non-liberal culture, right, into a sort of liberal democratic culture and so th things, you know, issues like, um, you know, free, you know, freedom of expression doesn't mean freedom from being offended. These kinds of things that you hear the stereotypical kinds of issues. It seems like if, if, if they're coming from a culture that's suspicious of the liberal tradition, and at least in the United States, it seems like there's skepticism about the liberal project on the left and the right, on, on the populist side with the authoritarianism, and then on the, on the liberal side, right, with the safe spaces and things. Like, it seems like, Many groups are skeptical about the liberal pluralistic project. Yeah. So, and, and the real challenge here is that, uh, liberal pluralism or liberal democracy depends upon certain kinds of virtues or characteristics in their citizens. Um, and the, the challenge is that, um, a liberal democratic government can't actually cultivate those virtues. Um, so, Characteristics like trust and affection and hope, um, humility, hospitality. These are critical aspects of democratic society. And when a democratic culture ceases to have these things like trust and hospitality and affection, uh, the actual political culture begins to break down. Um, democracy depends upon a willingness to lose an election and uh, the ability to handle that. And uh, I think what we're seeing is a sort of a fraying of, of the democratic project. Yeah. This is like what de Tocqueville saw, right? When he visited that, like that basically what you had to do is kind of take some of the aristocratic values from the old world and di disseminate them through civil society because the state really can't do it. It's, it's, it's churches, it's civic organizations, it's communities. That's where people will be formed for democratic citizenship, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, European countries have been trying to hold, hold themselves together through, you know, public awareness campaigns or by trying to have public schools sort of indoctrinate people into being French and French secular values um, they've tried, they've tried all sorts of things, but really the struggle is, um, how are we going to hold ourselves together? And so my particular book is not so much focused on answering that question for Muslims or answering that question for secular liberals. I'm trying to help particularly Christians think about how they are going to be, uh, democratic citizens in a pluralistic society? How are they going to, you know, extend grace and hospitality to their Muslim neighbors and their secular liberal neighbors? Um, so drawing on those Christian resources for thinking about those things. Yeah, it's interesting 
too, right? Like you before nine eleven, books like Huntington's Clash of Civilizations, right? Like their influence started to wane a little bit after nine eleven. You know, the, 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 this thing, the, these, these, this thesis comes back with a force, and and you're you spend a lot of time in the book talking about nature, the nature of pluralism and pluralisms, right? Because you, you, there are different kinds. Because I mean, a lot of evangelical Protestants would hear the word pluralism and think, okay, this is the enemy of particularity and 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 and, uh, and the old time religion, and this is a, an attempt to sort of make everything, you know, every prayer to whom it may concern. But you know, you're saying no, there's different kinds of pluralisms. And some of them are actually not just uh, compatible with Christian faith, but actually ought, ought to be uh, really aspirational for Christians as they as they go as neighbors and citizens. Yeah, in many ways, it's it's wonderful news. Uh, pluralism should be uh, wonderful news for Christians in many different ways, but it, it requires a division of the question and some clarity around what we mean by pluralism. So one is sort of descriptive pluralism, which is essentially describing that there are differences in the world. There are cultural differences. There are religious and philosophical differences. And then there are differences of communities. You know, a family is different from a state, is different from a school, is different from a, a mosque. And so we need to be attentive to these distinctions. And that's one sort of way of thinking about what pluralism is, simply describing the differences well. Um, but then there's a more normative difference that says these differences are a good thing. Uh, we are happy that there are distinct cultures. We are happy that there are distinct communities. Um, and really, Christians, um, I make an argument in the in the book, Christians at large should be quite happy about every form of diversity, uh, except for one. And that diversity is, uh, religious. Essentially that Christians are not happy that people are worshiping many different gods or seeking many different ends, but that there is, there is ultimately one. However, the fact that, um, someone might worship a different god from me, um, for example, in this book, it's it's about Muslims. Uh, a Christian pluralism <clears throat> or a pluralist like myself would say that while I'm not necessarily happy that Muslims aren't worshiping Jesus, it's, you know, I think Jesus is a pretty great guy. Uh, I do believe that Muslims are to be treated with respect, honor, that they have rights and that their rights are public. So I want them to be able to have um, a public mosque to wear public clothing and to make public arguments on uh, where the United States should go politically uh, based on their Muslim convictions. So I, I want a public square that is loud and noisy in which everyone is bringing their particular faiths uh, into the public square. So that's what pluralism is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? If you were a Muslim in France, secular France, you have less religious freedom than if you're a Muslim in England with an established church, you know, through, through the, which the queen is the head of. <laughs> that's, that's the irony, right? Yeah. And that, that's an exact um, example of uh, a unique moment where Christianity or sort of like a dominant Christendom is actually more generous than liberal hegemony. You know, uh, the, the French Revolution 
and uh, French secularity is not generous to religious minorities in the way that Anglican, you know, political Christendom is. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Yeah, David Brooks in his book, The Social Animal, he said, you know, the best, he says the best class he ever took in college was on the British and French Enlightenment as an undergrad. He said, you know, science doesn't usually create new philosophies, but it usually enthrones or dethrones old ones. And he's like, you know, basically what everything about like, you know, social science and and depth psychologists teaching us is the British were right, the British Enlightened thinkers were right, and the French were wrong, right? That you, things like traditions and family, you can't just reinvent the human nature, human nature from the ground up, like like the French thinkers thought you could do. Yeah, it's and it ends up being quite violent, right? The French end up killing quite a lot of people for their their vision of killing God. So sometimes, sometimes you, you got to kill, kill the people, people to help the people. people. <laughs> <laughs> got to make an omelet. Exactly, exactly. How you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs? You know, yeah. Now, you know, it's interesting too because you have a big section in the book on Abraham Kuyper, which you know, given that you studied in the Netherlands, is just very fitting. Uh, and Kuyper, I mean, he's one of these people that has been influential in 20th century American evangelical thought, like a lot of th- through ministries like InterVarsity or you know, pr- ministers like Tim Keller, and people, a lot of people have found Kuyper compelling. You actually explain how Kuyper thought that no religions no there could be no religious hegemony on this side of eternity just because people are you know the finitude and fallenness and and and, and that he was you know even that he thought part of the sovereignty of, of of christ right as the king you know he has that great line i forget isn't it lectures on calvinism where he says there's not a microbe in the universe that christ doesn't look at and say mine but actually this like muslim expression of worship in a kind of country like america that would be part for Kuiper of Christ's sovereignty, right? Like that's not counter to Christ's sovereignty, but it's an expression of it. Yeah. So he presents what Kuiper is so beautiful and, and helpfully presents is an alternative to the way in which Christians engage other faiths in the political square. So, you know, some, some Christians try to run away from other faiths. Uh, others try and dominate other faiths, but he provides us with this 
Christ-centered uh, way to say, Christ alone is king, and that means I am not. So if Christ is king, I am not over the United States. So if I were to try to ban mosques or ban headscarves or ban Muslim schools, I would be taking Christ's authority for myself. And so it's not only unjust, but it's actually blasphemous for the Christian to try to dominate or rule other religions because uh, they sit directly under the reign of, of Jesus. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I, I, I found that material in your book really interesting and provocative. It, it, that's not something, though, that seems to, again, get to the rank and file, right? I mean, this is kind of this sort of, I mean, Kuiper makes this uniquely modern argument, right? But it's it's Christologically rooted, but it's kind of a, it's an argument for a sophisticated kind of non-hegemic liberal democracy as opposed to a sort of secular he he hegemonic one. But that just isn't, it doesn't seem like a tune a lot of people want to dance to. <laughs> yeah, and I, yes, absolutely. So it, it goes back to um, what we were talking about at the very beginning of the disconnect between evangelical institutions and the evangelical rank and file. And um, so, you know, my, my argument about Kuyperian pluralism, it plays well at Wheaton College or at Tim Keller's church or at Calvin College or at Christianity Today. Not so much at Liberty University. No! Jerry, no. Jerry Falwell's probably not reading his Kuiper. So, but that's why the second half of my book really argues that an intellectual argument is insufficient without the attending to formation and how people's hearts are shaped. Yeah, you have a whole chapter, right, on worship, uh, on how, how worship forms democratic, hospitable citizens. Yeah, so I'll give you an example of what this looks like so we don't get too intellectual. Um, the, in, in a church in London, uh, after the refugee crisis coming out of Syria, an artist took a pile of clothes from 700 refugees who were trying to get away from Syria and had um, washed ashore in Greece. And the artist took all of these clothes and bound them up in this beautiful uh, art piece in a sanctuary of a church. And they, they sort of hung all of these clothes from these refugees, hung suspended over the congregation while they sang. Um, and these, if you can just imagine for yourself sitting in this congregation and singing a simple Christian song like, they will know we are Christians by our love. And you have the clothes of res refugees hanging over top of you. That has yeah. an impact yeah. on your heart, right? You can't just sing that song and think it has no implications. So in that chapter, I really explore how worship can move us to action in ways that, frankly, theologians cannot. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard Jamie Smith say this, I think, before, where he, he's giving a talk. And he said, you know, if I ask you what you think, I might be able to get to know you a little bit. But if I know what you want, I completely know you. Because we're creatures of desire, right? Like, if, if Augustine and Nietzsche agree on it, it must be true, right? <laughs> like, that's my personal philosophy. Is that, but, you know, Augustine and Nietzsche both understood this in different ways, that we're, we're, we're rationalizing creatures. You know, what does Jeff Goldblum say in The Big Chill? His character says, you know, a human being can get get through a day without food uh, or without sex, but you can't get through a day without a good rationalization. So unless you're, unless, you know what I mean? Unless your motives and your, your deep sort of soul and desires are changed, right? 
you're not going to, that, that's not, it's not going to just be abstract ideas that will change us. Actually changing what we want and how we imagine the world. Right? Exactly. So worship is one of those formations. But the other thing I talk about is just experience. We have to practice life together. And so Christians need to not simply think about Muslims in the abstract or sing about Muslims, but they actually need to practice life together, to, to practice hospitality, which means, you know, we're, we're going to do it badly at first, but it's, it's something to be practiced. And it's actually through working alongside one another, studying alongside one another, you know, playing games, cooking alongside one another, through those embodied kinesthetic practices that Christians can begin to imagine a life alongside their their Muslim neighbors. And that's that's what is gonna have to happen if, you know, these nations are gonna hold themselves together and not fall apart. And what's interesting too, right, because again, your frame of reference is the history in, in Europe, particularly, you know, granularly there at the Netherlands and stuff, but but what's different between Europe and, and this country is the presence of so many Christians, right? So many practicing Christians that that this kind of immigration pattern that happened in Europe, but there was a left-right reaction. But that left-right was not necessarily polarized along traditional religious values. It's just the populism versus the kind of liberal, secular, you know, hegemonic pluralist. But there was was not much of a religious voice in the debate that was Christian. Yeah, and I think um, one of the things we see historically is that. Um, when Christianity is generous towards others, it tends to be in historical moments where Christians have less power. So um, in the United States, Christians still have a good amount of power and privilege. So it's very difficult for them to be generous uh, with it. And so what may need to happen in the United States for uh, real cooperation between Christians and Muslims is Christians are going to have to lose a few more elections. Um, they're going to have to become more and more disempowered before they're willing to see that religious freedom uh, uh, impacts all of us, that, that we all depend upon a generous, pluralistic religious freedom. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because it's sort of the, probably the least generous is in between, right? When, you're, when, you're, when you have some power, but you're losing it. And, and, until you got to lose some more, it's very, it's very interesting how like something so silly, like, well, if you elect me, we're gonna say Merry Christmas again. Like, it's it's absurd, right? But like, but it did strike a chord. Something there, you know, there is this fear of this sort of the liberal elites and secular hegemony, and that that really does motivate people. You know, what's fascinating is uh, I don't know if you picked up on this, but Kuiper says specifically he he points to the Reformation um, discovery of religious freedom, you know, 500 years ago, really um, the early reformers making these arguments for religious freedom. He, he admits that the reason they discovered the need for religious freedom was because they were being killed by Catholics. Right, 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 right. So there's sort of a, he says that they, they learned it in the martyr's blood, uh, the need for tolerance uh, by losing. You you talk about the book in the book too that Christians need a complex view of Islam because the world's complex, right? We you know we we by ne by necessity kind of are reductionistic, of, uh, you know, at times to get through life. But if we're, if things are going to really change and we're going to really engage seriously with increasing Islamic immigration, that 
we've got to learn a more textured, real, earthy and messy view of Islam. I mean, what specifically how like how what do you think needs to be messier for, for most uh, Christians in North America to, to get this? Well, they're human beings, right? Muslim, Muslims are human beings. And, uh, you know, so narrowing them down to a security threat, uh, narrowing them down to you know, sexual oppression or repression, narrowing them down to some sort of uh, medieval horde of barbarians um, is not really contending with the complexity of a global religion that spans a wide variety of nations and cultures and histories. And so it's just, um, our, our media framing of Muslims doesn't do us any, any favors. So, um, but I come to, once again, I come at this as a theologian. And I think that, um, if we want to reframe Muslims, you know, it really has to do with, um, framing them with the complex life and teachings and example of who Jesus was. That Jesus, as far as, as we find in the gospels is not a comp is not a simple guy. He's, he's actually quite complex and the life he calls us to is, is quite varied. Um, a variety of emotions, encounters, stories. Uh, it's not a simple thing to follow Jesus and it's not a simple thing to follow Jesus alongside a complex faith like Islam. And so simple cliches like be nice or be hospitable or welcome the stranger uh, are not really going to sustain us. We need to really contend with the complexity of our neighbor and the complexity of of our Lord to have a more faithful response. So, you know, the 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 simplistic cliches of both right wing Christianity and left wing Christianity aren't really going to help us or sustain us. Yeah, you even argue that politically that that we probably need some sort of new political arrangement, especially for evangelicals who are so uh, sort of held captive to the Republican Party that there there's not an ability to have textured, nuanced kind of positions. You're thinking there's there might need to be some political realignments that take place. Yeah, yeah, and I think ultimately, um, it, while while it is a horrible thing living under the reign of Donald Trump. There, there may be a time in tenor. It's not. He said today, it's great. I heard him today. On the, he's, everything, this country is running so smoothly. <laughs> but I, uh, seriously, you know, I think um, uh, looking back on it, perhaps this could be the, the sort of horrible break that evangelicals need. Um, that, you know, you, you spoke about that sort of rupture within evangelicalism um, between more conservative and more progressive. You know, that that might just need to happen. Um, I like I said, I think evangelicals need to be humbled for another few decades um, and and start learning from, um, frankly, many of the immigrant churches that are um, sprouting up throughout the United States. Um, they have a lot to teach evangelicals about it, sort of a, a renewed or a different political imagination. And that's only going to come from losing, I think. Now, again, you as a student of Kuiper and and somebody who is making an argument for, uh, as a Christian theologian ethicist, for a sort of Christian participation in a non-hegemonic, hegemonic, like liberal democracy. That, there's not a lot, as many of those voices right now. I mean, over the past few years, right, in theology under the influence of people like Stanley Harawas or John Milbank and 
philosophers like Alistair McIntyre, or you read like uh, the Benedict Option most recently, and Rod Dreher. There, there seems to be across conservative Protestant circles a, a, an affinity for this argument that you know liberalism is just it creates really shitty people. It's all rights, no duties. It's all kind of you know like it's a, it just creates capitalistic shallow vapid citizens and we got to go back to some you know like you know and there's usually some kind of romanticizing of pre-modern you know life i always say hey look women's rights penicillin the you know three cheers for modernity hip hip hooray but you know <laughs> but but Alice, i mean do, do you find that in your own field that, that that you're you're you wind up sort of contesting with people who are saying hey as christians we shouldn't be fighting for the liberal project yeah yeah no i think it, i think it really comes back to a real lack of uh, theological political imagination amongst theologians. You know, either we have to, we have to run away or we have to dominate. Um, and those are really the only two options or some kind of meddling, moderate, uh, sort of, uh, you know, compromise between Christianity and liberalism. That's sort of uncritical. Uh, and that's, that's why I think. Um, while Kuiper is flawed in a number of ways, he's, he's profoundly important for this moment of, uh, a way beyond those, um, tired political theologies. It was interesting. Um, I was at, uh, AAR, American Academy of Religion, and there were a number of theologians who had spent the last 20 years of their lives, uh, criticizing liberal democracy and then watching Donald Trump try to tear it down. <laughs> They uh, they were reflecting that you know maybe liberal democracy isn't so bad. <laughs> I, I had Stanley Harris in this podcast a few weeks ago. He said I, I asked him about Trump, and he said I was like, do you feel like uh, this strange perverse sense of it? He's like, yeah, I thought I, I said, but I was right. Look, this is how bad it is. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah, no, that is interesting, right? That that you know that there's this sort of. Uh, yeah, I, I think you're right about the lack of imagination. That there's kind of that there's a kind of un-nuanced view of of the liberal project, right? That uh, and again, like, you know, this goes back to what you were saying earlier, right? Like the people on the right and left spectrum of classical kind of liberal the liberal project understood that government can't do it all. That you needed the church and civic civil society. That you know, like, and somehow I think a lot of those theologians frame the project so reductively yeah 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 and it's sort of a belief that once you go into public you either dominate you retreat or you somehow assimilate um but being within the public square as a distinct actor with a distinct voice um that cares about the integrity of other communities that dislike you uh it's just needed it really is and um and then the question is how do you sustain that over time you know you know, it's interesting because Nietzsche said, you know, I, I often think it must have been lonely to be Nietzsche because he was so, such a prophet, like he just saw so many trends. But he said, you know, psychology will replace theology the queen, as the queen of the sciences, which of course, you know, every discipline now is framed psychologically. But you, you quote Bavink in the beginning of the book and, and talk about rather than the, theology being the queen of the sciences or the disciplines that Bavink saying theology should delight in being the servant of all the disciplines. And that, that, that's a really interesting way to frame the role of the theologian in the academy, right? As the servant to uh, the, the public good. Yeah, and I think, and I tried to embody that in this specific book. Um, I had one reviewer who was upset that I wasn't giving more political 
um, answers to these questions. He wanted me to tell, you know, how many Muslim immigrants should we let in? What should we require of them? He wanted me to give very specific public policy advice. But as a theologian, I see myself as uh, needing to take a bit more of a humble posture towards specific political issues. It's my job to be a servant to Christian citizens by providing some theological frameworks uh, through which they can think politically about these issues. Um, but it's not my job as a theologian to tell people exactly how to vote or exactly how to think, but to give them a sort of lens to think about these issues. And that's, it's a more humble posture, I, I would hope. Um, and it's one that I would like many more theologians, pastors, and church councils to take on, which is the responsibility of um, empowering Christian citizens to do this work themselves, rather than treating them like you know, open mouths that you dictate to. Yeah, it's as if, you know, like when mainline Protestant churches make these position papers, as if all the people, oh no, the Presbyterian Church USA is upset about, they, 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 nobody cares. Like, <laughs> But it's interesting, right? Because you're saying, yeah, I think of like Luther's uh, statement, right? That, that our works aren't for God, they're for our neighbor, but it, love of neighbor. And so, you know, y- y- the end of immigration policy ought to be th- something like, you know, a judicious you know, welcoming of the neighbor and love of the neighbor and the stranger, right? But that could look lots of different ways, you know, just like caring for the marginal could look lots of different ways. And there could be very, 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 very well-intentioned Christians of different political persuasions could both think they're they're advocating for the marginalized or the stranger with different sorts of policies. Absolutely. And, you know, my book, I think, could lead people in different contexts to... um could lead some context to open their doors towards more immigrants and could actually lead others to close their door. So an example, obviously, here in the United States, it's it's absolutely horrible how few Syrian refugees we have allowed to come in. It's it's unjust, it's despicable, it's, it's terrible. But if you look at what happened with Germany in the last couple of years, uh, they allowed, you know, more than half a million Syrian refugees um, into their country, which was... Uh, beautiful and generous. Uh, however, it had an, an enormous cultural and political backlash and uh, a growing, it, it helped to jumpstart a growing hard right wing uh, movement um, because the country simply wasn't capable of handling uh, that many refugees. Now they could financially, they're wealthy enough to handle that many, um, but culturally and politically, uh, it, it was not a wise move. So. Once again, as a theologian, I'm, I'm not here to give, you know, 10 steps or, or, or 10 tips on what to do, but to theologically frame these issues so people can try and discern in their own context. What does Christian hospitality and, and Muslim immigration look like? It's so interesting, those sort of nationalist tribal parties in Europe, right? They actually like, you know, they play on some xenophobia, but then they also promise their citizens like economic goods and stuff. I feel like our populism is, hey, we're afraid of the, uh, we're afraid of the stranger, but, and we're also going to cut your health benefits. <laughs> it's, it's, you don't even get the socialism with a nationalistic socialist. You know, it's a very, it's a very impoverished kind of populism. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Yeah. Uh, so do you, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, how do you, what do you think will be sort of the most decisive factors shaping, uh, 
you know, increased Islamic immigration, like, and how that's going to shape our culture. What do you, what do you, what do you think the things that are, are going to be the determining factors over the few years are? Is it, is it refugees? Is it sort of our own foreign policy stuff? Is it, I mean, what, what do you think are the, are, are the big shapers of the world to come with regard to Muslim immigration? Yeah, well, I think there's a number of things that have a big impact. One is uh, large-scale terrorist attacks. Um, those things have an enormous impact, specifically because you know our our culture is quite vulnerable to responding intensely to those. So we we don't absorb terrorist attacks well. It's not like the Israelis, where you blow up a shop, they break the glass the next day, and you just go back into the marketplace. Like it's kind of yeah, we don't. That's not how we react. Never forget. Yeah, somebody has to get bombed. So, yeah. <clears throat> um, so terrorist attacks is one. Uh, but ultimately, I think this is a this is a slow cultural project. So I think that unfortunately, in a democracy, we get the politicians that we deserve. And um, God, that's very depressing. <laughs> sorry, brother. Uh, so Donald Trump, I think it's really important to think of Donald Trump, not so much as a leader, but as a reflection on who we are. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, he, he, he tapped into something that was already bubbling and, um, and really enunciated it. And so, you know, I think it really is a cultural issue, uh, not a political issue of, what kind of a nation do we want to be? So the fact that we've only let in a couple thousand Syrian refugees, that's a reflection on our culture, not so much our politics, um, that our, our culture allows that to happen. So the big factors to me are going to be terrorist attacks and the, de the specific development or deformation of Western political culture. And, uh, yeah, that's going to be, those are going to be the things to watch. <clears throat> Over the past few decade, a, de a decade or so, this question has been asked a lot. Like, is the father of Jesus Christ the God of Muhammad? Right? Is this are, are Christians and Muslims? How do you, as a theologian, how do you come at that question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There have been a number of debates about, you know, do we all pray to the same God? Um, are are Christianity and Islam basically the same? Or, um, are we all children of Abraham? Um, so I'll give you a disappointing answer is that I'm actually not interested in those questions at all. <laughs> uh, and the reason for that is, um, I don't, I think that, um, I think that there are enormous and important differences between Islam and Christianity. And, um, the way you get Muslims and Christians to, um, care for one another is not so much talking about how similar we are. Um, so that's like Miroslav Volf, his book, Allah, you know, really it's the assumption is Muslims and Christians will get along if we can tell them that they're really brothers, you know, uh, that they're, they have the same mother. Um, but I think the path to peace is much more to be found in looking, taking our differences seriously and then thinking about our own internal resources for, uh, loving across those differences. Um, and so it's, it's a question that Christians and Muslims are going to have to look at their resources that they have, their scriptures, their theology, and ask themselves, do we have the resources to live together? And how are we going to do that? I think any form of theologic, any attempts to sort of theologically blend the two 
Um, it, it, it doesn't get rid of the, the, the distinct differences that we still have to wrestle with. So. And it's interesting. Oftentimes in interreligious dialogue, the comparison is made, like to talk about the Bible and talk about the Quran. But really, wouldn't the proper comparison point be Christ in the Quran? Because the Quran is the eternal word, right? In a way that Christ is for the Christian church and not the Bible. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you could. I mean, obviously, Christians differ on what the Bible is and uh, who Christ is. Um, but well, I know you said you think he's a really nice guy. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. <laughs> he's a great great guy. The best. <laughs> So yeah, that I mean that's an interesting. But I think those kind of t- differences. It's interesting, right? I think you're right about that. Like understanding the nuanced differences probably helps you to to get along with your neighbor better, uh, you know, than than sort of paper paring over those differences. Yeah. So I mean, just an example. When I was in the Netherlands, I met with Muslims who said, um, "We <laughs> we hate dialoguing with liberal Christians. We like dialoguing with more conservative Christians." And I was kind of taken aback and I said, why? And they said, well, the liberal Christians are always so busy telling us how we're the same. You know, we're all the same and and they want to pray with us and they don't understand that we don't want to do that. And that's not how we think of ourselves. There's sort of, sort of a very patronizing, you know, we're, we're ultimately similar, but with the very conservative Christians, they can actually joke and exchange of how they want to convert one another. And they sort of, take take each other's differences quite seriously and so they they say yeah we actually enjoy talking with those guys even though they're totally wrong it's funny that it feels less hegemonic right i strangely matthew thanks for writing this book and for spending some time talking about it. it's a great read and i think for anybody that cares about uh islam and its effects in the west and and how christian theology engages it this is um this would be at the top of the list to read well, thanks a lot for having me, and and uh, yeah, I'd encourage people to check it out, and um, feel free to engage with me on Twitter. I guess we can extend the conversation or the fight. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So much. I somebody said recently on news that yeah, I thought Twitter was going to help spread truth. Oh, it's Letterman. I thought Twitter was going to help spread truth throughout the world. <laughs> uh, yeah, instead it spreads Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Matthew. Thanks, brother. Good to talk. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds, go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Matthew for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Christian Hospitality and Muslim immigration in an age of fear. It's a great and timely read. Thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.